All right, chapter two of Ephesians is where we are going to be this morning. As we continue our look uh, through this book, as we go verse by verse, section by section, um, and we hit, uh, as we did last week, verses one through three of Ephesians chapter two. Thanks for coming back. (laughs) Um, After last week, we were dead in sin. It doesn't get much better this week. Um, (laughs) I thought about our points being this. I have bad news. Things are bad. That's my first point. Here's my second point. Things are really, really bad. But I thought maybe we might need to get a little bit more descriptive than that. Um, This is going to be a tough one this morning, and so bear with me Um, and with, um, with God's word. I think there will be um, a place here for great conviction where we have had trepidation about things like God's wrath. I hope I can call us into seeing actually the good news in it this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, it says this, And you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And um, that ends the reading of God's word this morning. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, um, I asked my wife uh, what I should wear this morning when you're going to preach on hell she said something red. I was going the other direction. Um, I thought that would, <laughs> that would be the thing, something warm and comforting. And so I went with blue and gray. There is news that sometimes we have to give people that causes them grief. That causes them grief. But then there is a news and there are announcements in our lives that don't just simply cause us grief, but they hack us off. They are offensive to us that they grieve us, not just in spirit, but in our connection to humanity. Last week, we heard the news that we are dead in sin, meaning we are separated from God relationally, that our sin has corrupted our entire system, and that we are indeed hopelessly enslaved in sin. Separated, we have a sin that is systematic, and we are enslaved to it. Well, if you thought the, that phrase, dead in sin, was bad, may I introduce you to the phrase, by nature, children of wrath. They are at the end of verse 3, that that is who we are, it says. It means this in short, that you are in the essence of your character, in your nature, in your DNA, worthy and deserving and destined to receive the wrath of God. This is the difficult truth that we must look at this morning. And we must look at it head on and straight in the face. The wrath of God is God's punishment flowing out of his hatred for sin. God's wrath is his personal, passionate, holy antagonism against sin. And it manifests itself fully and completely and ultimately in what we understand to be hell. The idea of an eternal judgment, an eternal separation from God, which is what hell is, separation from God. As we said, we were dead in our sins, that's separated from God, and the fullest extension of that is hell itself, an eternal separation from him, is a biblical fact. Indeed, the discussion about the wrath of God is all over the Bible, even in those places in which we most associate with good news. 
John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, why? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish. If you hear it and listen to that, there is a dark side to even that verse. There's a shadow to that verse. If you do not believe, you shall perish. If you do not have faith in Christ, you are lost and lost eternally. And so I ask you, do you believe in God's wrath? Is it actually a reality in your life that it exists? Or is it something we've simply pushed aside? Perhaps you can't or don't want to consider God's wrath and in particular the idea of his eternal judgment. And that is perhaps not just understandable that you would struggle with this and be repulsed by it, but perhaps it's right that we should be repulsed by God's wrath. The 17th century devotional writer, a man named Samuel Rutherford said this, no Christian should ever mention hell without tears in his eyes. Perhaps that is a practice that we should continue. This is a difficult subject. Jonathan Edwards, yes, the man who says, who wrote the, the verse or the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Avery God, said this, this doctrine of the idea of eternal judgment is indeed awful and dreadful. And because it is so troubling and difficult, we avoid it, we don't like to talk about it, or perhaps we simply reject it either directly or indirectly in our lives. And yet the fact is that Jesus talks about this concept more than anyone else in the Bible. Yes, the Jesus that we simply, we, we just recently finished a series called Gentle and Lowly, the heart of Jesus. Gentle and lowly, lowly Jesus, the Lord of love, spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Therefore, it must be important to him as an outflow of his love and his character. And therefore, while we have some terribly bad news to give this morning, we must trust that out of the heart of Jesus, that perhaps, perhaps there is good news here. Perhaps. It's a difficult subject, so I just want to simply address it very directly this morning. Two concepts this morning. First is this, I want to address God's wrath. And then I want to address our nature as those who are going to, the objects of God's wrath. Two difficult points this morning. First, I want to address God's wrath directly and head on. Understand the wrath of God. What is the wrath of God? The wrath of God can be defined this way. I think this is the best definition I've seen by a commentator, Dr. Leon Morris. He's a New Testament commentator. He said this, God's wrath is God's strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of his very nature. It is his strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising, not out of something contrary to his nature, but out of his very nature. And it is the burning zeal within him for what is right and what is just. Now understand that one of the, I think, a misconception about God's wrath is that it is irritation, that it is like our wrath. It is an explosion of anger. It is not erratic passion. It is not uncontrolled anger. God's wrath is not like ours. It is not an eternal bad temper or flying off the handle in a moment of rage. Rather, God's wrath is a settled and clear anger against the injustice of sin. And still, though, having heard that it's not just this explosion, erratic and irrational explosion by God, we still object to the idea of hell because it is emotional for us. Someone will say, are you saying that blank is going to hell? And they fill in the blank with my father, 
my friend, my spouse, my child is going to hell? And very quickly and very rapidly, it gets deeply personal, doesn't it? Are you saying, I'm going to hell simply because I don't agree with you about how you're to be saved? And the objection goes like this. I don't accept that. Your premise is wrong, they say. I live in near and I know fine and decent people who are either atheists or they're agnostic or they're Muslim or they're Jewish. I can't believe they're going to hell simply because they don't believe in Jesus. What kind of God, what kind of good God would create, much less abide in eternal hell? And they would think, I cannot reconcile the idea of a loving God, which we do love and, and adore and desire, with a God who would abide by hell. And perhaps I can't fully silence all of your objections this morning and all the distress that we feel, but if I could offer two, maybe two thoughts, maybe we could call them defenses of the idea of God's eternal wrath. First is this, God's wrath, God's wrath flows out of his, the justice of his love. It is not dis distinct or exclusive from his love. In fact, in the Bible, in both the Old and New Testaments, God is depicted as a God who is both loving and a God who is just. And we look at that and we think, this seems mutually exclusive. In reality, they're actually mutually dependent upon one another. Wrath and judgment are the right and requisite responses to the injustice of sin against both a perfectly innocent and holy God who is right and beautiful and, and perfect and against God's creation. We say we desire a loving God and I join you in that. And I, I love that. But we understand that God cannot be loving and good if he lets the destruction of those things that he loves go without a just response. When the Bible speaks of God's anger flowing, out of, flowing from his care, it is, his anger is not something that is beneath him as if he has to go and wallow in the mud. It is actually something becoming of him in his love. Theories don't get angry. Philosophies don't get angry. God gets angry because there is evil and injustice in the world because terrible things happen to his image bearers and terrible things have happened to defame his glory. Sometimes it is easy to say a God of judgment is repulsive, but what if you lived in a war zone? And what if awful things have happened to your family? I've used this quote many, many times, but I return to it often. Miroslav Volf, I lived for a time in a country called Bosnia. It was in part of the former Yugoslavia in Sarajevo. My building had bullet holes in it and mortar shell remnants all over the place from the genocidal war that happened there from 1992 to 1995. Miroslav Volf was a um, theologian who grew up in Croatia. He witnessed and spoke to people who lived through the atrocities that happened during that time. In fact, during my time, I remember looking out of my window and I looked down a main road in, in Sarajevo and there was this one particular day in which they had silence in the streets because they were bringing in truckloads bones from an exhumed grave from Srebrenica where in one day they killed 10,000 men. And Miroslav Fulf says this, imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. If God were not angry at such injustice and, such, then it, and make a final end to such violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And I think anybody who has experienced such violence in this world and injustice 
if they're thinking correctly, would have to say yes and amen. Because we long for vengeance, and God says, you lay aside vengeance because I'm bringing mine. We say it is one thing, though. You look at that and you say, well, that's one thing. That's one thing to point to genocidal dictators in the Balkans. But if God wants to send war, war criminals to hell, I'm fine by that. I'm fine by that. But it doesn't seem fair to send generally decent people to an eternal hell for what are a few wrong choices. And to this, I would have to make my second response, which is this. God's wrath is God's response to the greatest desires, to our greatest desire. We think being sent to hell plays out like this, that we lived our life, and a few points here and there, a few points within our life, we didn't make some right choices, that we made some bad turns. We didn't choose God in a few places And therefore, at the end of our life, because God responds to our poor choices, he sends us to hell for those poor choices. And so we go to hell crying out, but I don't want to go there. If only I had known more, and if only you'd given me more chances to prove that I would make good choices. But in the Bible, in the Bible, hell is for for those who have decided to live life, not moments of their life, but their whole life on their own terms apart from God. Now, living life on their own terms apart from God does not have to look like Hitler and Slobodan Milosevic. It can look like somebody who lives in a suburban neighborhood who feeds children and cares for stray cats. Let me, let me, let me try to answer some of our, our objections to this by telling you about a fictional character. We'll call her Aunt Edna because we all have an Aunt Edna in our life, don't we? She's like, she teaches second grade at the school She is the quintessential nice person. She tries to do nice things. She makes cookies for her grandkids. She's kind to the stray cats. She adopts wounded dogs from the local humane society. But Aunt Edna is simply not into the God thing. Is Aunt Edna going to hell? Well, here's how John Ortberg answers that question. In fact, in any number of times and in various places, we have to see the fact that God has revealed himself to Aunt Edna whether through hearing the stories of Christmas and Easter or the awe of seeing the majestic rays of a sunset or the glories of a mountain range or through the whisper of her own conscience, each time and in each day as she encountered a God who made this world, she turned away from the whisper of God, calling her to acknowledge him and thank him and worship him. And each time, Aunt Edna said no to God. She said, it's nice that you're up there and, or that you're out there or where, whoever you are or wherever you are, but I'm good living life on my own terms without you. I don't need you to be God of my life, and I'm good at giving my life directions. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Hell is not for those who have made a few poor choices in their life. Being sent to hell more plays out like this, that we have given our life, our whole life, to live it on our own terms apart from him. We have said, God, I'm going to teach in a way that is apart from you. I'm going to live my life apart from your rule and your love and your reign. Life on your own terms apart from God is running away from the light. And ultimately, what Aunt Edna wants is just for God to leave her alone and live life the way she wants to, even if it's nice. And you know what ultimately what hell is? God saying, okay. You remember what hell is? It is eternal separation from God. And Edna wants God to leave her alone and let her live her life. And being left alone by God is what the Bible calls hell. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in his great book in 
parable on heaven and hell called the great divorce. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God ultimately says, thy will be done. You don't want me? You want to live your life apart from me? Then you may have it. Hell is God ratifying or agreeing to the choice we have already made to live without him. And not just a moment here or there, but a daily living out, choosing to live life on our own terms instead of submitting to him. This is why the most clear and definitive passages that speak of God's wrath use the phrase, so God gave them up. That's what it means. God says, you want to go this way? You may have it. You may have life the way you want it. And understand that that choice that Aunt Edda makes is not a morally neutral choice that she makes day in and day out. We tend to think that hell is for those who have made sinister choices day in and day out of selling their soul to devil, right? The devil went down to Georgia and we wanted to play a fiddle. And so we said, I've made a deal with the devil. But that is not, that is, it never looks that sinister. The choice that we make is ultimately between God and us. And we make it every day. It is no less sinister than selling your soul to the devil. It is selling your soul to yourself and saying, God, I want nothing to do with you. To say, God, I want you out of my life is not like saying to God, I would like to see other people and date around a little bit. This is not a morally neutral act. This is the God who formed you and made you. This is the God who gives you breath. This is the God who has provided every pleasure that you have ever had. And to say to him, I want nothing to do with you is not a morally neutral act. And this is the God who claims in his word not only to have made you, but to display his love for you by dying for you, and you reject that and you despise that, that is actually something morally atrocious. This is our argument for why we have hell. We have chosen it, ultimately, because we don't want God. Lewis actually describes hell this way. He says, hell is actually not locked from the outside. It's locked from the inside. Bertrand Russell said this, better to be a king in hell than a servant in heaven. That displays the heart of man. That's the heart of man. And the hell ultimately is not some explosion of God's wrath, some irrational explosion, but it's simply giving people what they have longed for their whole life. Life without him. Life without him. And life without God has an arc and a trajectory of consequences. And ultimately, they look like disintegration. That's what fire does, right? Fire. And it looks like darkness, the other metaphor for hell. Utter isolation. That's where life without God sends us. All right, that's our discussion on wrath. Wasn't that fun? It gets worse. You are the object of that wrath. And you are the object of that wrath by nature. I want to address our nature, the nature of man, really briefly. Are you okay with hearing some bad things about yourself? We heard some bad things about us last week. We have some more. Um, you know, there was, I heard the story of a counselor who had a client, and the counselor, you know, had done months and months of work with this client, and was finally was like, it was kind of the come to Jesus moment. And it was like, he, the, the client walked in, the counselor said, hey, listen, I've met with your children, I've met with your spouse, I've listened from you to you for months and months and months, I've cared for you, I've been empathetic for you. Now listen, I have to say some hard things for you. Are you ready to hear it? The man looked at him and said, No and walked out and left. 
We don't want to know who we are. We don't want our worst fears about ourselves confirmed. But this morning, may I introduce to you to Ephesians 1 through 3, where it says, You are dead in sin, you are sons of disobedience, and you are children of wrath. Now, these all point to what has been known and called the doctrine of original sin. And the best place, the best place to understand the doctrine of the nature of original sin and the nature of man to go is Ephesians chapter 5. So it's going to be on the screen for you. Ephesians 5, verses 12 through 14 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. In order, the reason why we have death is because there was sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, that's all pretty confusing, so let me explain. There are two things I want you to understand about about Romans 5. Romans 5 is saying this. We are in relationship with God through our connection to the first man, Adam. He was our representative. Romans is telling us that our state and our nature of being in sin and under the wrath of God is a result of our connection to Adam. And there are two ways in which we are guilty and deserve wrath because of our connection to Adam who sinned. First, we are deserving of God's wrath because we share Adam's guilt. Romans 5 verse 12 is revealing that our relationship with God happens through our federal head. We have a representative. This idea is not unfamiliar to us, but it is uncomfortable to us, especially to Westerners who believe that it is a meritocracy and we live life through an individualistic worldview. But when the president of the United States signs a treaty, guess who else has signed a treaty? You have. When the president of the United States bombs another country and we're at war with them, guess who else is at war with them? You are, because he is our representative. And because Adam is our representative before God, and this is the order that God put in the world, because he is guilty of sin before God, therefore we are guilty. In other words, it says that when Adam sinned, we sinned. That you can't look at God and say, I didn't sin. It was, it was just Adam who did it. No, he'd say, no. When Adam sinned, you were there as well. You were represented. And therefore you are guilty in him. Here's the second way in which the nature of man is affected by our connection to Adam. We are deserving of God's wrath because not only do we share Adam's guilt, we share Adam's nature. Adam is both our representative, but he is also the genetic father of all. There is a natural and genetic connection to him. And because Adam is the natural genetic family head from whom all generate, we are born with his DNA. And it is a no bueno DNA. It is a jacked up DNA. It is bad. It is, you don't want to be his kids. The genetic code is this, sinful. <laughs> it's no bueno. This means that we sin because we are sinners. It is not that Adam gave us a bad example and we've been following daddy's example. No, it is that we share daddy's nature and daddy's nature is sinful. You don't sin and therefore become sinful. No, you're sinful and therefore you sin. In other words, there is something wrong with us. Our natural state as children, before we have done anything at all, is as those who deserve God's wrath. If he, or Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, when David is confessing his sin to Bathsheba, he says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, he's saying, from the time of my conception, I was sinful. And Paul says we're natural-born sinners. For example, we, we look at someone... We look at someone and we say, we might describe them as a nat natural-born athlete. 
You mean that natural athletic success comes naturally to them. Some people are natural singers. Hitting the right note comes easily to them. We are naturally inclined to evil. We are natural born sinners. Listen, I have four kids. I have four illustrations of this truth in my life. If yours are like mine, you have these same illustrations. I never had to teach my children to lie. Never, ever, ever. I didn't sit there one day and go, let me put it on the whiteboard. This is a lie, and this is how you do it. Now, don't do that. No, they looked at me in the face from the time they were 14 or 15 months old, and I said, did you eat that? And they would say, yes, and the chocolate was on their face. They didn't have to be taught to lie. It comes naturally to them. You don't need to teach people to be selfish or impatient or cruel or angry or prideful. They don't. They don't need to teach them these things. We need no classes for them. They come as experts. And the hardware is installed on them. Therefore, we are conceived in both a state of guilt, already guilty before God because of sin in Adam, and in a state of sinfulness. You hear what I'm saying? Before you've done anything, you're guilty and you're sinful already. And therefore, you're deserving of God's wrath. Romans 5, 13 and 14 says this, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So he's saying, okay, this is confusing. I gave this command to Adam. Adam, don't eat of the tree. He violated it. I haven't given any other laws until Moses, pretty much. And yet people die because of sin. Why are they dying? You can't sin if there is no law to sin against. That's his argument. So why are they dying? Well, he's saying, because death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, their sinning was natural. It was part of their nature. They deserved death in their very existence, is what Paul is saying. He's saying there is no law, so if there is no law, people, people don't sin, but yet they still died, and they still died because they were sinful by nature. We are guilty of Adam's sin, and therefore we deserve the consequence of sin. Now understand, there is a, in the midst of this, this is really bad news, but there is, it puts all of us on really, really flat ground. It is so egalitarian. Romans 1 says, there is no one who is right with God. We are all under sin. That is our condition. That means there is no those people. That means you are those people. And I am those people. The robber and the rapist and the boy scout and the puppy lover are in the same condition. Both are liable and under the judgment of God before they have done anything. During his preaching ministry, this is really offensive, isn't it? I mean, this, this, this violates our sensibilities as to, as to regards to justice. The idea that I had a federal head, and because he messed up, I messed up. George Whitfield, when he was um, preaching and he became friends with a, a lady named Selena, the Countess of Huntingdon. And, and she was friends with him until she heard him preach one day. And he preached about the sinners and the rebelliousness of our nature. And this toe ticked her off that she decided to write a letter to George Whitfield. And she said this, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting to my high rank and good breeding. And frankly, that's actually our response, all of us, no matter whether you're a countess or anybody. So whether you're the Countess of Haddington, Hogan of Bremen, or Henley of Carrollton, your breeding is bad. It's bad. Just ask Ed's kids and mine. <laughs> and so let me, let me bring it very starkly, if I haven't already done so enough. 
you may ask the question, so you're telling me that before I was born, I was already guilty because my representative failed. I was born sinful so that I can't do anything but sin. I have committed sins because of that, and I can't do anything to get myself out of it. This religion sucks, and it is stupid, and I want to go home. And that is the right response. It is really that bad. And yet the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what's the first thing we must know to live and die happily? And here's the answer. The first thing we must know to live and die happily is how great our sins and miseries are. That's pretty much what we've been doing for the last little bit, isn't it? How great our sins and miseries are. You see, this is hardly the answer that we expect. To be happy, you must realize your misery. This is what the scriptures say, though. To be sober, the alcoholic must face his alcohol addiction. And the sinner must come to grips with the seriousness of his lostness. If we are Christians, the good news to this is, I can do nothing? And the answer is, yes. And in that, in the shadow of that, there is great good news. There is great good news. I don't see it, you say. Let me see if I can pull it out. So let me see if I can understand and draw out the good news in the midst of the bad this morning. I want to give you two bits of good news. The good news is found in the midst of the bad news in this. The good news is in the bad news because the representative system that we hate actually makes a way out for us. The very system that we has declared us guilty actually makes a, a way out for us. This, we hate the idea that we come into the world guilty. It violates our sensibilities. But within this system, understand there is a way out. And the way out, guess what? This is great news. It doesn't depend on you. So let me ask you this, this way. We had a representative, and he messed it up for us. But we're guilty, and we're sinful in him. Let me ask you this. What if we got a new representative? The first representative was called Adam. So why don't we just call this replacement representative Adam 2.0? Or we'll make it more simply, the second Adam. So the second Adam, in order to be our good representative, he would have to come and be perfect and guiltless so that we're not guilty with him. Where the first Adam failed, the second one would have to be perfect. Not only that, but the second Adam would have to cover the guilt of the first Adam's sins and all the people who have been connected to the first Adam, all of our sins. And then having done that, he would also have to give us a new DNA so that we would be set free to a new operating system and actually begin to function correctly. This is what we need. What if God provided this representative, Adam 2.0? Well, he did. That's who Jesus is. And in fact, this is how Romans 5 even talks about who Jesus is. He is the second Adam Bear with me here. Romans 5, 14 through 19 says this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. This is the bad news, right? Even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. But look at what it says. Who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, Adam points to a better Adam. A second Adam. Verse 17. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That's Adam. So one man sinned, that's Adam, he died, therefore death reigned because of him. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, which is what Jesus gives us, grace and pours his righteousness upon us, reign through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness, which is the life of Jesus dying for us, leads to the justification in life for all men, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In other words, the little, little allegory I gave you there on Adam 2.0, that's in modern language what Paul is trying to say to you in Romans 5. That we have a second Adam. 
And the first one messed up, but we have a second one who's come to live perfectly and to give us his righteousness and to give us his DNA. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and talking about the resurrection from the dead, it says, for as in Adam all die, but so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so that's part of the good news. The federal headship, that system that we don't like, that messes things up for us, actually within it is built the good news that there's one who will make things right. And the second, the good news in the, in the midst of the bad news is because of the wrath of God, it gives context to the love of God. Not only that this second Adam would he have, remember what I said, not only would he have to come and be perfect, but he'd have to cover over the guilt of the first Adam, but all the sins of those who are connected to the first Adam. I skipped over verses 15 and 16 of Romans 5. It says this, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For as many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, in layman's terms, Jesus has to justify and cover over and cleanse all the sins that happened because of the first Adam. He had to cover over our sins, not just of Adam, but of us, you, and me. And you know that second Adam, you know what he had to endure? He had to endure the consequences of Adam's sin and your sin. And what is that? The bad news about hell. But that's what he had to endure. He had to endure the wrath of God. He had to endure hell, the hell that we deserve to cover over the sins that Adam and that we committed in Adam. And what is that hell for Jesus? The son separated from the father. My God, my God, he says on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Which is why in the Apostles' Creed it says that Jesus descends into hell. He experiences hell, judgment and wrath for us. On the cross, all the judgment and wrath for all that is wrong in this world, for all the genocides, to the smallest faulty desire in your heart is paid for by Jesus. And so John Stott puts it this way. Sin is us putting ourselves where only God could be. That's what Aunt Edna does. I want life apart from you. I'm going to rule my life. It may be a nice life, but that's what sin is. Sin is putting ourselves where only God should be. Sin is me saying, I want to be God. I want to rule my own life. I'm going to be my own master. But salvation is when God puts himself where only we should be. To stand in our place and to bear our judgment. So did Jesus speak about hell to frighten you? Yes. Yes. But the fear of hell will never make you love God. But neither will the absence of hell make you love God. It is only when you know how much Jesus has suffered for you and why he had to do that will you finally grasp the depths of God's love for you. He was forsaken. He lost God's presence. He descends into hell. And therefore, hell is not just bad news. Hell is now the measuring stick that tells us the lengths to which God will go to display his love for you and me. It is no mere shadow of good news in the midst of the bad news. It is the glory of the resurrection and the fact that Jesus dove into death itself, into hell, and was separated from the Father to be with you. That is the rising light of God's glory and love for you. People seek to get rid of hell to make God more loving, but in rejecting hell, they actually make him less so. If you reject hell, if you cancel out the wrath of God, you cheapen the love of God because his love costs him nothing. But if this is their hell, it is now, it tells us the links, the links that he will go to show us how much he loves us. 
And only, understand, only understanding the severity of his wrath will we understand the depths of his love for us. So two directions of application. For you who are the Christian this morning, let me just say this very briefly. Romans 8.1 says this to you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. All that bad news, all that bad news, it's been washed away. If you're in Christ today, then understand that God has not an ounce of wrath for you, not a drop. Jesus drank it all. Jesus drained the heart of God dry of wrath for you and me. So whatever you're going through today, whatever suffering and sorrow, whatever difficulty, it may be God's discipline and discipleship in your life, but it is not his punishment or wrath for you. If Jesus has satisfied the wrath of you for you, then God is for you and not against you. And this makes, it brings, it brings Romans 8, 28 actually into beautiful contrast that all that is left for you is good. What about for those of you that may be Aunt Edna sitting in the chair? Are you Aunt Edna? I don't think we have too many Hitlers in the room, but we may have Aunt Edna's. We may even have the religious version of Aunt Edna who's been coming to church and sitting in pews for years and years and years, but still lives life for herself. You are still under wrath, and those are Jesus' words. And yet I would say to you, God is patient, and he longs to be merciful. He longs to be gracious. This is the heart of God for you. Romans 2, 4, and 5 says this, though. There's a call to his graciousness, inherent to it. It says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourself wrath on the day of God, of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here's the hard truth. By sitting here this morning and hearing what I preach to you, you have now even less ground to stand on. You're storing for up for yourself continued wrath day in and day out by rejecting God. By hearing the good news, the gospel of offers of Jesus, it's merely adding to the indictment in the portfolio against you. You are without excuse. And yet, if you are still alive today, then God is patient, and God is kind, and God is pleading with you to turn and find forgiveness in his son. We're celebrating, this is Palm Sunday. You know what Jesus did as he saw Jerusalem as he went towards the cross. Before he entered in on a donkey, he wept. It says this in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. God patiently waits and pleads for you to come. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 I join Paul. He says this, I implore you, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I stand in the place of Jesus right now begging you, begging you. The means of God, he calls you with his tears. Come and receive his forgiveness. It says that God takes no delight in the death and destruction of the wicked. His wrath has to be provoked and it has to be provoked over and over and over again. But his love is constantly simmering and pleading and he pleads with you to come to him. Come to him. And so would you come? Would you come? Yes, in the midst of the bad news, but understanding the bad news, there is a glorious, loving Father who invites you to his throne, who invites you to his presence. Let's pray. If that's you, would you join me in prayer?
Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, I just pray that right now that your spirit, who's maybe unsettling us, with this whole idea of a wrath of God, it is distasteful to us. And perhaps it's meant to be. To drive us to you. God, I pray that for those in this room who may be unsettled, I pray that they would run to the cross of Jesus. They would see where your wrath was fully meted out upon the Son, and they would cling to him. God, show us our uselessness to save ourselves. And so, Lord, it, I, I need it again today. I need it again today. I repent of my doing life on my own terms. And I look to Jesus. Would you come and be king in my life? Restore yourself to the throne of my life today. Listen, if that's you, would you, would you pray that? Ask for God to be merciful to you. God, would you be merciful to me? You have given me, you have blessed me, and you have taught me these things from the time I was a little one. There was never a day in my life in which I did not know the name of Jesus. And yet, Lord, so many days I live as if you were not king. Oh, God, forgive me. Be merciful to me. I cling to the cross of Jesus again. I thank you for that. I pray now that you would enter into my, my worship and change me by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.